welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Sue Carter. She's a world-renowned researcher who has discovered important new developmental functions for oxytocin and vasopressin and has implicated these hormones in the regulation of long-lasting neural effects on early social development, as well as stress and chronic pain. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, Sue, welcome to the show. Um, I want to introduce Sue Carter, who a lot of us have gotten to know very well. And it, it, my first part of the introduction will be when Sue talks, everybody listens. <laughs> so the biggest trick is getting her to talk. So I get you to myself today and um, you have to talk. <laughs> so this is perfect. So Sue has a lot to say. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. She is also a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And she's held lots of teaching positions. She's authored over 400 publications. She's edited five books. And then what I'm fascinated in, uh, she continues to write prolifically. It's amazing what she's done. And I would encourage you to listen to her first podcast, because basically in the 1980s, she is a woman who brought oxytocin to life. When I was in medical school, I graduated in 1979. We thought it was a lactation drug. Not much was studied about it. Sue pointed out in the first podcast that since it really was assigned a female status, a lot of attention was not paid to it, but that's a different topic. So what we really want to focus on this podcast, and there's a tremendous amount to say, is that oxytocin is a social bonding drug. It's highly, highly anti-inflammatory. It's excellent for your health. But unfortunately, in this day and age, we're having a big problem generating oxytocin. So Sue, welcome to the podcast. And uh, I just want to start out with some data from the Cigna study that was done by the insurance company back in, in 2018. They looked at about 20,000 people, and they just looked at the role of loneliness and social isolation. They found out that 53% of Americans, whether they were in a big town, small town, county, city, whatever part of the country, that social isolation was about 53% of the population, and that the effects are devastating. It was equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And then they found out, which I thought was disturbing, is the isolation rate was the highest in college students and people in their 20s. So that's a whole different topic also that's quite disturbing. Anyway, lack of social connection is a risk for your health, a very significant risk for your health. So, Sue, um, I'd like to have you comment just on that data a little bit, but also about why social isolation is so devastating and what the role of oxytocin is, or lack thereof, in creating this really tremendous effects on your health. Well, the human nervous system and the whole human body evolved in a context of sociality. We do not emerge from eggs uh, laid in a nest. We are born, we exist inside of a mother. That mother may keep us there depending on the species for a few days up to years and during that time then the the infant is socially attached physically through a placenta to its mother that placenta baby mother unit 
is disrupted by birth, and oxytocin plays a role in that and allows that to happen. And then if the infant, let's say it's a baby elephant, wants to get bigger, it needs to be on the outside, but it's still not mature enough to find its own food in most cases, in most species. And so mother feeds it. So you have two fundamental processes, really three, the uh, gestation, the time in mom, the birth itself, and then the event of feeding the baby with milk that's made in the mother's body. And of course, all of that works best if the mother accepts the infant. And so there's built into that chemistry an additional chemistry that, if you will, causes what used to be called a maternal instinct. And that maternal instinct is the basis I think we accept now for other kinds of sociality. Now, the mother is not always the same. So the mother who gestates a baby may not be the same one who raises it, but somebody has to be willing to invest in the offspring socially enough to let that baby get to the point that it is mature enough to find its own food and then to take care of itself and perhaps eventually to reproduce. So that's the mammalian life cycle. And built into that cycle are a series of social events. And those were not left to chance. Those had a distinct biology. What's most remarkable about, remarkable about this story is that that same biology is now being shown to affect how long we live, how healthy we are while we're alive, our capacity to deal with stress. And stress coping is one of the major things that oxytocin does well. Wow. It's so much, it's sort of, I find it at times myself even overwhelming to think that this one molecule could sit at the apex of such a complex pyramid of functions and to have been ignored. So that's, so you're right. I hadn't also thought of this so clearly, but if there's not some commitment of the mother to this baby, and we all know being parents that raising kids is a bit challenging at times. Oh, I mean, it's a big commitment in, in humans, but it's a big commitment for any living creature to dedicate so many of the resources to hunting for food, protection for this child, even dying for the child, that that connection has to happen somehow. And what you pointed out that oxytocin is a major player in creating that bond. Hmm. And it's a big deal. Yeah. And the, what's interesting about this, um, there's a wonderful woman named Sarah Hardy, H-R-D-Y, who has written a book called Mothers and Others. Sarah is an anthropologist and she asked the question, worked on this for decades, why do we take care of others? Why do we help others? Well, first she had to show that we do. And in fact, 
very few babies are actually abandoned. So even if the mother dies in childbirth in any kind of society, somebody would take the baby. And in more, in less modern or less, I don't like the word developed, but in other cultures, that was just a normal thing that happened. Other women, sometimes men, often grandmothers, often aunts, relatives, but sometimes non-relatives too, would pitch in. And one of the questions that's still sort of being mulled over by the field is why? What is it about a baby that allows people to take that baby, even if it's not their own, and to try to raise it, to invest in it, to adopt it. We do, it, in our culture, total uh, uh, abandonment of infants is very rare. And I think the baby brings forth in others, not just the parents, this same system. We know that fathers have higher levels of oxytocin than non-fathers if they're allowed to be with their baby. It's very important that we've only started kind of introducing that into our culture. But so when I was born, the fathers were sent off to a so-called waiting room. Now, over time, they were encouraged to be present at the birth. But even then, it's much more than just being there for a few minutes. It's really investing. All of that it, as I've said, it just can't be left a chance. It's too important right? So, to our species survival. Right. So that makes sense. That, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that either, where the fathers that are bonded with their child also, there's that link with elevated oxytocin levels. So again, not just a female drug. Nope. Not just no. a female drug. And the benefits to the father are tremendous. How's One, that? interesting one is it will at least in some cases reduce testosterone now testosterone is a, basically a toxic molecule it's bad okay. for your heart i think a lot of people would argue in that in your in favor of your argument that yes. testosterone is it, toxic it has the benefit of perhaps making the male more capable of defending his mates or his offspring maybe, um, but from the point of view of the physiology of males, testosterone may be the most toxic molecule in the body. Wow. And oxytocin going through periods when that, it doesn't go away, it's not gone, but if there's a period when testosterone's reduced, perhaps in part through the stimuli from the babies, this may be, and I haven't seen any statistics, so I don't know if it really works this way in the long term, but I think it's quite possible that men who are fathers and have spent a lot of time with their offspring are going very likely to be healthier and have, have a longevity that exceeds that of the male who simply drops his sperm, doesn't interact with the baby, goes off, possibly to do stupid things and <laughs> fight battles. Right. So let's go to chronic pain for a second. So we know chronic pain is 
first of all, this is a whole different conversation about, you know, chronic disease, both mental and physical, is an inflammatory disorder, hypermetabolic disorder. It's complicated, but the bottom line is your body is in fight or flight for sustained periods of time. And so any intervention that we do that can drop down the body's fight or flight or inflammatory response is very helpful. So in chronic pain, it's very common to become socially isolated because you just don't feel good. Then the social isolation is devastating on your health. And then you don't have the energy to reach out and reestablish ties and bonds. So we have learned that you have to go through a very careful sequence of sort of bringing your brain and body back online in in order to start the process. But I did did notice years ago, way before I knew much about chronic pain, is that on my follow-up questionnaires that people were getting better, a big part of what they were doing was reestablishing ties with family and friends. I go, huh, that's interesting. But I didn't put much credence credence into that until I met Sue. So it turns out that social connection um, creates oxytocin, which is highly anti-inflammatory, promotes more social connection, and you reverse the process going the other direction. So what I'd like to talk about now as far as the the problem, but also the healing journey, um, is two things if we have time. So just briefly talk about your work with Prairie Voles, which I think is fascinating work about very deep social bonds and ties. Then also in people with PTSD about their lack of oxytocin compared to those with oxytocin, mm-hmm. because it all has to do with reactivity of your whole body to stress. And again, under chronic stress, your body is in fight or flight, which is sensitized and painful. Mm-hmm. So I just like to start with the, with some of your work on the prairie voles, which I think is extremely interesting. Okay, thank you, David. I think that the prairie vole for me was basically an accidental point. I was working on rodents in general, steroid hormones, estrogen, testosterone, and someone brought me, I was a faculty member at that time at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, which is on the prairie. One of my colleagues was an ecologist. He was trying to understand population crash and boom effects. Nobody could figure out why populations would build up to 240 per hectare. That's how they measured it. And then drop to two. How, what was that all about? The story got played out by Disney as lemmings. Lemmings don't really do it that in quite that way, but prairie voles do. And a prairie vole is just a prairie dog, right? Not a prairie dog at all. Okay. So what is a a prairie vole? Prairie vole is a mouse-sized rodent. Okay. Prairie dogs are not rodents. Prairie voles live, actually, they tend to live in pairs. And those pairs built up around a family will expand to almost a little colony. And within that colony, only the mother and the father breed. The rest of the animals stay as babysitters or helpers at the nest. The scientists like to call these alloparents. So they're not the biological parents, but they're there serving many of the same roles except for lactation that the mother does and the father. And so these animals, I was just amazed. First, no one believed us. They, we started doing these studies in nature. 
they said, these animals can't be living in lifelong pair bonds. That would be monogamy. And how could a rodent have monogamy? Well, they do. Not only do they have it, they will, they will indeed stay together as pairs for their entire lives. That caused, well, that just caused all kinds of trouble because they were small rodents. Everyone thought they shouldn't invest so much in each other. Why would they have such a complicated lifestyle? They even had incest avoidance. They, the animals that stayed at the nest stayed small. They didn't grow. They didn't go through a regular puberty. They were just there kind of like bees as workers helping to take care of the offspring. So that strange lifestyle led me to start to ask whether or not there was a distinct physiology. And the physiology of that turned out to be based primarily on a a sort of ascendance through who knows what mechanism exactly of oxytocin and this other hormone vasopressin as regulators and a downplaying of androgens. So in fact, male and female prairie voles are about the same size and it's very difficult to identify males. They actually have even the genital anatomy is not as different as you might expect in most rodents. So we had this sort of um, interesting relationship. And I have spent about 30 years really trying to understand that. And what I would say now is that it, it is a form of monogamy, but it's social monogamy. We did early experiments with DNA fingerprints. The prairie voles failed the test. The Mori Povich show should have had prairie voles on it because they were very socially bonded, but they were not sexually uh, monogamous. And that, of course, you can imagine the kind of uh, concerns that were raised around that because humans are very obsessed about monogamy, especially sexual monogamy. But what was important was survival. These animals were promoting the survival of each other in a way that was more like a colony and less individualistic than most rodents. So rats and mice don't have, they have some of these characteristics, but they're very, very much less um, identifiable. So the prairie vole is just a weird critter, okay? And my collaborator, Lowell Getz, had spent, actually before he started working with me, he had spent 25 years proving that they were living in these pairs. But until the 1980s, when DNA fingerprints came along, it was not possible to prove whether or not they were sexually uh, monogamous, and they weren't. But sociality was so important that it sort of overshadowed this whole thing about sex and how important sex is. And that took some reconstruction of human thinking too, because at that time, people really believed that monogamy was about sex. The term means one gamete, actually, 
the Greek term means one wedding, but it's, it's basically used in our culture to mean genetic monogamy, although most humans, I won't, don't want to shock you, most humans over the lifespan have more than one mate. It's very uncommon for people to only actually have one partner for their whole lives. So we call it divorce. We have all kinds of names for it. We sanction it. We don't worry about it that much now. But the Prairie Bowl wasn't doing that. They weren't abandoning their mate. They were staying together. They were raising, in many cases, the males were raising another male's baby without any prejudice, if you will, because the argument would be it was for the good of the species, the good of voles in general to reproduce. And then you could have this tremendous kind of almost like a, a snowball effect and huge numbers of prairie voles or lemmings probably do the same thing. They would grow to huge numbers until they perhaps overtaxed their environment and had a crash. We don't know exactly what causes the crashes, but the prairie vole's sociality was so apparent that we couldn't miss it. That you couldn't what? Couldn't miss it. Okay. It was easy to miss social behavior in domestic mammals like rats and mice because you could raise them alone and breed them and so forth. And they did okay. But the prairie voles were completely changed by being in social groups. Their whole physiology there was profoundly altered and adaptive. Very, this is very adaptive. This is how various species of mammals have always survived by doing what works. So what worked best and does for most mammals is some form of social interaction and in humans, social support. Um, and the, the mystery that I think we still don't totally understand is what happens to our nervous system when we're isolated. A fellow named John Cassiopo spent his career trying to document that social isolation perceived was very um, damaging. But right. it never really figured out why. And I think it's because under conditions of isolation, you don't have these protective factors that include, and oxytocin certainly not the only one, that include a kind of cocktail of social, uh, that, that mimics social support. Okay, so you can live without other if you could trick your body into thinking the other is there. And, and we're in a very interesting time, David, because we have young people whose social life is not in person. We have a lot of people who live through social media, which isn't very social in many cases. Um, well, and you also heard Dr. Lustig talk about the deaths of despair, um, really directly linked to horrible diet changes that are inflammatory, but also with the bi-directional nature of social media, he documented the, the difference between dopamine and serotonin, dopamine being sort of addiction drugs, serotonin being happiness, 
And of course, it started in 2007 to show this incredible graph how the deaths of despair started climbing really quickly with that. So mm -hmm. social connection doesn't really occur with a with a digital phone. Not the same way. You you're trying to form other nature. Right. And also in the in the grade school, this is a huge pet peeve of mine amongst many, as you know. But you know, I went to one of the top spine fellowships in the world, and I did not have much homework ever until I hit college. I just didn't have homework. But we had a lot of play, hanging out with my buddies, hanging out with my friends, and a lot of social connection. And you know, what determines success long term is resilience, which comes from play and social connection. And right now we're so intent on test scores, you're just cramming homework down these kids' throat. And of course we know it's actually not working mm -hmm. very well. So I'd, I'd like to just sort of, we probably will have a few more podcasts here in the near future, if that's okay with you, because we didn't even cover the material I wanted to cover today. But I just want to summarize again, what we just talked about is that with social connection, that's meaningful and interactive, that higher levels of oxytocin happen. I mean, they're quite a bit higher. And we didn't get to talk about the prairie ball experiments where you actually could reverse social isolation with giving them oxytocin. Yeah, it's a very right. powerful molecule. It's also anti-inflammatory, which actually directly decrease, decreases the speed of nerve conduction. It desensitizes your brain, which is part of the inflammatory system. And so you actually calm down the whole body and nervous system with oxytocin being one of those drugs. Obviously, there's other molecules. But lack of social connection is inflammatory, is devastating to your health. And so we have this catch-22 in chronic pain of trying to get people back feeling comfortable enough to start inter interacting with other people. Then the people that heal, a major factor in their healing is actually reestablishing re social connections. It's a huge, huge mm -hmm. factor um, in dealing with chronic pain and chronic disease, by the way. So um, the prey bull, again, interesting animal, which again, oxytocin is a common molecule there that helps the social connection and bonding. Humans did evolve and come to the top of the food chain by social connection. The way to punish somebody almost worse than death is social isolation. And so again, Sue Carter has made a tremendous contribution to our fund of scientific knowledge. Again, 1980s when it started to come out, but really a tremendous contribution to our sense of well-being and humanity with her with the contributions on, on oxytocin. So Sue, um, we want to have another podcast or two. We didn't even come close to the things we want to talk about with oxytocin. Any final thoughts today? To well, we need to be clear that the oxytocin that we're talking about is made in the body. Right. When we try to make it into a drug, it's very, it may have some role, but it's very difficult to work with because it's easy to overdose the system and actually produce the exact opposite effects. That's where this similar molecule and its receptor called vasopressin comes in. And so we are not yet here at the moment in a time when we can create a perfect mimic of the endogenous, the internal oxytocin. We really, also we using it as a drug does not help, it's not sufficient because the receptor sensitive and the whole body, other chemicals are involved. We really have to honor sociality. 
Right. We have to honor our, what I'm calling, sociostasis. We cannot be healthy if our social environment is unhealthy. We have to play. That's Steve Porges calls that social exercise. We have to feel safe. Those are the big lessons. They're not biochemistry. They're conceptual. And we can institute them at this moment right now. Absolutely. Sue, thank you again. Wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sue Carter, for being on the show today and for explaining the important role that oxytocin plays in social bonding, social connection, and ultimately social cohesion. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.